Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. Today, our guests are Lizzie Cleland and Adam Eaker from The Met in Manhattan. How are you two today? Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. We're really thrilled to talk about the show. Hi, it's lovely to meet you, Deb. Thanks so much for inviting us to your show. Well, thank you very much for being here. Let's get right into it. The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. How did you two set this up? Will you tell us about the exhibit? We want to know when it is. We want to know everything about it. So who wants to go first? I'm happy to begin. The Tudors, Art and Majesty in Renaissance England opens to the public here at the Met on October 10th. It's a project that I've been working on for six years and Lizzie for even longer And it's an exploration of the incredible art created for the Tudor courts. It's not a history exhibition. We don't have documents in it. It really is about the height of creativity and splendor that was achieved for the monarchs, expressed not only through iconic portraits, but also through sumptuous textiles, jewels, armor, and many different forms of decorative art. Yes, indeed. It's been a real pleasure working on this exhibition with Adam. Adam comes to the material very much as an expert in paintings, and I'm a decorative arts curator specializing in textiles, especially tapestries. And so what we've really tried to do with our exhibition is give a fully encompassing sense of the sorts of artistry and splendor which could be seen at the Tudor courts in England during the long 16th century. So You can expect to see the great portraits and these astonishing and vivid faces, but alongside them also the monumental scale tapestries, the glittering arms and armor, the manuscripts. And that's certainly been one of the challenges for us putting together this show is uh, this incredible range of material, range of scale from the enormous to the tiny. But of course, that is how we hope to capture a true sense of what it was like, the sorts of art objects that people would see in the Tudor courts. So what exactly can we expect from this? Looking at your catalogue, it's almost 200 pages. And I'm so excited to learn more about it. So as Adam pointed out, tempting as it is, we're not doing an illustrated history. So, for example, if one came to our exhibition expecting to see portraits of all six of Henry VIII's wives or the four Thomases, Wolsey, uh, Cromwell, Cranmer and more, you won't see that. Instead, we've tried to present quite a fresh take on the material, really selecting the best pieces of artwork surviving from the period 
going a little bit off the beaten track. So in addition to the Holbeins and so forth that people will look forward to seeing, we also have these works in, in other media and gleaned from all over Europe. So the cathedrals of Belgium and France, churches in the Netherlands and so forth to track down these works of art from the Tudor period and present them in a thematic rather than a strictly chronological way. Another goal of the exhibition was to give visitors a bit of a sense of what it was like to visit one of these Tudor palaces, where you would have all of these brilliant overlapping surfaces of armor, of metalwork, of beautifully dressed bodies, textiles hanging on the walls alongside paintings. And so we, even in the architecture of the exhibition, have emulated certain features of Tudor Palace architecture, whether it's the long gallery that you might stroll down and encounter other courtiers, or one of those small alcove-like spaces called closets where very privileged visitors to court could encounter intimate, small-scale objects like portrait miniatures. Maybe I could add, Deb, as you are well aware, this is such an exciting period in English history. And this is something we have also tried to fully address in the show. Issues like the ebb and flow of England's relationship with the rest of Europe and indeed the world as a whole. This very exciting moment when people really start to realize there is so much more in the world beyond Europe. So there's this curiosity and delight in global art objects. So we've brought in pieces from India, for example, or Chinese porcelain. There are representations of Turkish carpets. And we would love to share with our visitors a sense of the English really engaging with what there is beyond Europe. I understand this exhibit was postponed because of COVID. Is that true? That's correct. Originally, the exhibition was scheduled to open in October of 2020. And pretty early on in March of that year, we realized that that wasn't going to happen. But we're so grateful to all of our lenders that they really kept to their commitments to the exhibition. And, and we feel we're very much able to present the vision that we had originally, albeit two years later. So good things come to those who wait. Maybe I can jump in there, Adam. You added one particularly exciting loan to our list in the period of increased work on the show between 2020 and 22. That's true. So we were able to incorporate some of the most cutting edge scholarship and also to add one loan, namely a portrait of the Moroccan ambassador to Elizabeth's court who led an important embassy to the queen from Morocco in, in the year 1600. This is a portrait coming to us on loan from the University of Birmingham in England. And I think, again, it points to that truly globalized world of Elizabethan art and culture that Lizzie has already referred to. Such great points you make. Can you give us an idea of where the portraits and the art is coming from, from around the globe? We have many lenders around the world. So all of the British institutions you would expect, ranging from the Royal Collection, the V&A, the National Portrait Gallery, the National Gallery of Scotland, the Great University Collections, have been incredibly generous lenders, the British Museum and Library, of course. And on top of that, we also have some perhaps surprising lenders. So a cathedral in Florence, the Basilica of San Lorenzo, has loaned an important reliquary 
We have loans coming from Spain, France, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Austria. But we also wanted to show the real strengths of Tudor art in the United States and in Canada. So we have some fantastic things coming, for example, from the National Gallery of Canada, a wonderful portrait by Hans Ewerth, and then the Met's own holdings of paintings by Holbein, of Tudor armor, of great textiles and works of decorative art. You touch on something in the intro about the tenuous claim the Tudors had to their throne and how they used art as part of their pageantry. Can you explain that to us a little more, please? Yes, certainly, Deb. Well, I'm sure you know better than most that Henry VII, when he claimed that crown at the Battle of Bosworth Field. There were many, many people in England who felt that he was not the legitimate heir to the throne. Of course, we have the Wars of the Roses hot on our heels behind this period. So Henry VII is very eager to assert his kingliness. And he uses his art patronage very wisely to create this aura of majesty around his courts in London and Richmond. And I think we can also point to the way he's looking across the channel towards mainland Europe to emulate the sorts of examples one could see at the courts of France or the Dukes of Burgundy. Uh, Deb, as you know, history tends to present Henry VII as a, a rather fiscally prudent person. But in fact, although he's very careful about how he spends his money, he does spend tens of thousands of pounds on velvets imported from Florence, on Flemish tapestries, on great paintings. Uh, he's commissioning of, uh, portraits of himself and of his family, on manuscripts and other such works of art. And we've really tried to bring as much of this material as we can to New York to give a, a full sense of how he's leveraging this aura of majesty that could be created at the court. Of course, we've got the ambassadors from all the major European powers in London watching, taking notes and sending home dispatches. So it was really very, very important to show that he was on a par with any of the European monarchies. As you know, his son, Henry VIII, takes this idea of competition, competitive magnificence to great new levels. I'll add to what Lizzie has said that another key theme of the exhibition is how Mary I and Elizabeth I, who were the first two women to rule over England in their own rights, used portraiture in particular to assert their own legitimacy. So not only did they face questions as members of the Tudor dynasty, but they faced questions as women exerting enormous power in the 16th century. And as this exhibition shows, they adopted very different strategies in their portraiture. Mary I, who married Philip II of Spain, presented herself as a devoutly Catholic Habsburg consort. She would portray herself wearing reliquaries, wearing jewelry she had inherited from her mother, Catherine of Aragon. She adopts a very traditional language of queenship in the sense of being the wife of a king. And Elizabeth, who, as you know, never marries, who is the famous virgin queen, has a completely different iconography in her portraiture, which is about 
besting her with an almost supernatural or mystical power as this divinely anointed ruler who literally causes the sun to shine after a period of storm. We see this iconography investing her increasingly over the course of her reign with these really extraordinary powers. She was definitely iconic. So let's talk about the exhibit itself. I understand it's in four parts. Is that true? Well, Deb, we have five gallery spaces in the exhibition in which we present just under 120 works of art in thematic groupings. Adam, do you want to do the first gallery? The opening gallery of the exhibition is called Inventing a Dynasty, and it really explores this theme of the Tudors as self-invented, self-anointed rulers of England who had what we're calling this tenuous claim to legitimacy and really had to use art and diplomacy to assert themselves, to legitimize themselves. We introduce the five Tudor monarchs through a series of portraits. And we also look at the role that paintings and textiles and illuminated manuscripts played in negotiating Tudor relationships to much more established, much more venerable dynasties on continental Europe. The second gallery is called Splendor, and in that space, we have endeavored to bring together the types of decorative arts that a courtier would encounter within a Tudor palace or a great home of one of the higher ranks of the aristocracy, the likes of Bess of Hardwick. So we incorporate monumental tapestries, two of which on display are known to have belonged to Henry VIII with a surviving example of furniture from the period, the wonderful Hardwick Sea Dog Table, which is alone we're particularly excited about, alongside examples of goldsmith's work made in London by both English and émigré Flemish and French silversmiths. The third section of the exhibition really focuses on portraiture as one of the key genres of Tudor painting. And we have a wonderful group of paintings by Hans Holbein the Younger, the greatest portraitist working at the court of Henry VIII. Those include his portrait drawing of Jane Seymour, as well as his really iconic painting of the young Edward VI, child of Henry VIII with Jane Seymour. And then we have a wonderful section exploring the emergence of the portrait miniature as a key genre of portraiture at the Tudor court. So looking at the work of figures like Lucas Horenbout or Nicholas Hilliard, who transform portraiture into a kind of small-scale jewel that you can hold in the hand or wear on the body. The Boleyns, a scandalous family, an epic tale of hubris and ambition. They're all here, Thomas Boleyn and his three children, Mary, Anne and George. Elizabeth I also makes an appearance. The show premieres on PBS on Sundays, August 28th, September 4th, and September 11th. Also available on the PBS video app. Special thanks go to Georgia Public Broadcasting for their support of all things Tudor. Languages of Ornament, which is the fourth section of the exhibition, is where we endeavour to untangle exactly why it is that Tudor art looks the way it does 
So tracing some of the stylistic and visual sources that Tudor artists were looking towards. So our visitors can expect to see the revival of classical antiquity. There's wonderful manuscript we're borrowing, the first architectural treatise written by John Shute, who had traveled around the Italian peninsula copying ruins. It's a wonderfully illustrated, luxury printed book. But alongside the conventional Renaissance interest in the revival of antiquity, we also have the very Tudor interest in the early Middle Ages, a sort of neo-medievalism. The Tudors were very keen to present themselves as the heirs of King Arthur and his court. As you know, Deb, Henry Tudor was Welsh, and they really build on this sense of a Celtic legacy, calling themselves the descendants of Arthur and indeed of Brutus, the first king of England. So we see a lot of Celtic-style knotwork in some gorgeous textiles, not least the Luttrell table carpet, a generous loan from the Burrell collection, but also on arms and armour, for example. We've got Cumberland's suit of armour on view in that space. And indeed, as we see in the work of Shakespeare and so forth, of course, Tudor England also has this deep fascination with the natural world. This idea of the liberating wilderness, enchantment, as well as the allegorical language of nature. And not least the source of the Tudor's great dynastic badge, the Tudor Rose, bringing together the red Lancastrian and the white Yorkist rose in that wonderful example, early example of branding. Uh, so that is also explored in more detail in the fourth section. The final section of the exhibition is called Allegories and Icons, and it really explores the flowering of Elizabethan imagery. We have a really stunning group of pictures of the Queen herself, including the Ditchley portrait from the National Portrait Gallery, the Rainbow portrait from Hatfield House, coming together to show all of that magical and esoteric symbolism that court poets and painters use to invest the Queen with this aura of supernatural power. And we also explore the diffusion of her imagery through printmaking, through a new media culture, really, that made her into a pan-European celebrity. Everything sounds almost overwhelming for someone who loves the Tudors, Tudor history, the art, the clothing. If we want to plan a trip, what would you recommend we do? How would we go about it? We really designed the show so that people could engage with it on a number of different levels. We are huge Tudor history nerds ourselves and have been since childhood. And we really hope that those of you who have an immense knowledge already will still find new things to discover and also will just savor the experience of immersion in these splendid objects that help us to evoke and recreate the world of a Tudor palace. But we also wanted to make sure that those visitors who don't really know who Henry VIII was or Elizabeth I, that they'll get an initial grounding in Tudor history, Tudor genealogy. So we have a kind of visual family tree articulated through portraits at the beginning to orient visitors to the political situation. But what I would say to a visitor is it's okay to feel overwhelmed. That was part of the intention of Tudor Splendor was to dazzle 
a visitor to court. So that response is, is very natural. But I always say, you know, in any exhibition, that visitors shouldn't feel that they have to be tied to a very strict itinerary or that they have to read every single label. I think if there are, you know, splendid, gleaming objects that really speak to you across the room, it's okay to let yourself be drawn to them. And hopefully this is an exhibition that people who are able to will return to and and savor on multiple occasions and on multiple levels. Absolutely. I'd say, please, if you're able to make it to New York City, we'd love to see you here. The show is up until January 8th next year, 2023. And a smaller version will be on view afterwards in Cleveland. And yet third iteration will be in San Francisco next year. But for those who are not able to come to New York, I'd also love to draw your attention to our website as we have worked quite hard to try to conjure up at least some of the magic that's on view here in the galleries on the website. There will be a series of mini films showing some of the Tudor artworks being handled, viewing them in movement. So, for example, thanks to the V&A, we're able to show the Heneage Jewel being opened and closed. The National Trust has shared footage so that we can show that marvellous sea dog table from Hardwick Hall being deconstructed because it was designed to be taken apart into 17 different elements, to be exact. And you can see a film of that on the website. There'll also be a film showing one of these great Tudor tapestries being installed in the space. So you really get a sense of how palaces were temporarily dressed for the special occasions before the artworks were removed and moved to the next palace in the itinerant court. So there's a lot to see on the website as well. And Adam and I have also worked hard with our colleagues here in our digital department to create an audio guide, which highlights some of the great portraits and also the exceptional works of decorative arts on view in the exhibition, together with snippets and quotations from contemporaneous documents to give a sense of the different voices of the period. I'll just add to what Lizzie has said that, as Deb mentioned before, we have produced a real doorstopper of a catalog, very beautifully illustrated and and printed, edited by our wonderful colleagues here at the museum. And so for those of you who are really diehard fans, that will have a lot of information about the objects and the larger historical and art historical context. Listening to everything you will have to show us, I have a question, just kind of an off-the-cuff thing here. Have some of these things ever been out of England before? I hesitate to speak in certainties, but what I would say is we are reuniting objects which have been apart for upwards of 400 years. For example, the different bronze elements intended for Cardinal Wolsey's tomb, subsequently taken on by Henry VIII himself. Those were split up under the time of Oliver Cromwell with elements going to Hient Cathedral, where they've been on view ever since the 17th century. One of those pieces is coming. We also have a a tapestry being lent by the cathedral in Narbonne, which has been in Narbonne since the Commonwealth sales of the of 1649-1650. So certainly there are pieces coming across the Atlantic that haven't left Europe before. And one final thing, 
let's talk a little about Holbein and his part in your exhibit and in the latter part of the Tudor and Elizabethan era. Out of all the painters who worked at the Tudor courts, Hans Holbein the Younger is certainly the one who has had the most enduring fame, who comes the closest to being a household name. I don't think he's quite there, but he should be. He's really one of the greatest painters of all time. And and what's so astonishing about his work is, uh, for lack of a better word, the realism, the way that he'll capture the stubble on Thomas More's chin or the textures of leather and feathers in his portrait of the royal falconer, um, Robert Cheeseman, which is coming to us from in the Maritz House in the Netherlands. So he's an absolutely astonishing technician and also someone who, more than any other portraitist of the period, conveys a sense of personality. At the same time, it's important to remember that he was someone who would have been viewed by his employers really as a craftsman. There wasn't the very romantic idea of the artist that we have today operating, particularly in, in early 16th century England. And it seems that that very realistic style of painting actually fell out of fashion within a decade of Holbein's death. And the Tudor painting that you have in the second half of the 16th century has very different aesthetic priorities. It's much more about creating a decorative, flattened, ornamental surface that's very much in dialogue with contemporary textiles, contemporary metalwork. Nicholas Hilliard, the great Elizabethan miniaturist, was actually trained as a goldsmith and he carries that attention to precious materials, to his work in painting. Another feature that distinguishes Elizabethan painting is all of the literary references that it makes. It has very esoteric symbolism that can be a challenge to decipher today. And many of these portraits actually include poetic inscriptions, whether in English or in Latin. So they're paintings that you read as much as you look at them. Thank you very much for your time today, Adam and Lizzie. Can you tell us one more time how long your exhibit will be at the Met, please? Yes, certainly, Deb. So the exhibition will be on view at the Met here in New York from October the 10th, 2022, until January the 8th, 2023. The second venue will be the Cleveland Museum of Art, where it will be on view from February the 26th until May the 14th next year. And then finally, you can catch a third version of it at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco from June the 24th until September the 24th next year. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Deb. Thanks so much. And we're thrilled that you are as excited as we are about this exhibition. Yes, thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I look very forward to meeting you, and thanks for joining us today, and we will see you soon. Thanks to the listeners for joining in. Please subscribe, enjoy the podcast, and have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. <laughs>